uh, but that God had shown his love for me as a part of his world. It became personal. Uh, it also means that God uh, showed his uh, love for me, uh, not just in sending Jesus for do- to, uh, to die for sins in general, in a, in a vague sense on the cross, uh, but that Jesus had died on the cross for my sins. Right? That, that happened when I was 15. I understood that I was a sinner, that I needed God's love shown to me in the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the cross. And that was a wonderful thing, becoming a Christian. Uh, but after a while of being a Christian, I, I, I kind of wanted more. Uh, if you know me a bit, you, you'd know I'm someone who's not easily satisfied. Uh, and that was the same at this point. I, I wanted more. I was hungry. I was a bit dissatisfied. And in the midst of that, some other Christians, at least I, I do actually think they were Christians, some other Christians came to me and they said, Aaron, you know, if you want to be really spiritual, if you want to be really full and blessed as a Christian, uh, you have to ask God for this second baptism in the Holy Spirit so you can speak in tongues. And, you know, I just didn't really know what to do with that. I was like, well, are they saying I'm not a Christian? or just some sort of second-class Christian. A bit later on, we moved to the local Baptist church, and some people there said, you know, Aaron, the reason you're not experiencing, your your, your Christian life feels a little bit incomplete. This microphone's annoying me a little bit. feels like it's dropping down. Anyway, hopefully it settles into its groove. So they're saying to me, Aaron, the reason your Christian life feels a little bit incomplete uh, is that you haven't obeyed God's command to be baptized by full immersion, right? This is the problem, right? You, you were never dunked, right? You're only, you're only sprinkled as a baby, and that's why God's full blessing isn't on your life. I'm, par- I, you know, I'm kind of, you know, uh, caricaturing a little. But that's basically what they said, and, and that was really quite unsettling for me, right? Well, was it wrong or somehow deficient for my parents to have me sprinkled as a baby? Was that why I was missing out on some fullness that these other people were promising me? And then others said, that, you know, the reason why you're not having the same uh, kind of spiritual experiences as we have, you know, we have these encounters, these dreams, these visions, the reason you're not having those is that you're just not serious about fasting, you see. Right? If you'd only make fasting a regular discipline in your Christian life, you'd have these amazing spiritual experiences. So throughout that whole period, there was really between uh, the age of uh, 15 or 16 uh, until my early 20s, I, I was growing a whole lot in my faith, but I was also very unsettled. I was full of questions. Well, was I actually a Christian or just a fake Christian? A second-class Christian? Had I heard and believed the true gospel or a gospel that, that was somehow deficient? And if I had heard and believed the true gospel, what was I supposed to do with my longing for more? In Colossians, Paul's writing to a church that's asking very similar questions. Very similar questions to those. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, have a look at verses 1 and 2, we see Paul's opening greetings to the church. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, To God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So so Paul's writing this letter along with Timothy uh, to a young church in the city of Colossae, which is a part of uh, what was called the province of Asia. That's not Asia where like China is, uh, but Asia as in modern day Turkey, right? Asia Minor as it was called. Uh, And this church in Colossae uh, probably came into existence when Paul was doing ministry in Ephesus. 
right? As that was in around 50 to 55 AD. So Paul, you can read about Paul's ministry in Ephesus if you like. It's in Acts chapter 19. Uh, but it seems that during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, a guy named Epaphras, who Paul refers to, you can see it there in, uh, in verses 6 and 7. Uh, so Epaphras comes to Ephesus from Colossians, and as Paul is preaching the gospel, Epaphras becomes a Christian. Uh, and in fact, he not only becomes a Christian, but Paul trains him up so he can be what Paul, uh, who Paul calls a fellow servant of the gospel. By someone who Paul has trained up to go back to Colossae and the towns nearby to, to preach the gospel. And that's what Epaphras did. Right? In fact, the result of Epaphras' ministry was that churches were planted not just in Colossae, but in nearby Laodicea and Hierapolis as well. This guy was a serious church planter. So now, about 10 years later, Epaphras has gone to visit Paul, who's under house arrest in Rome. We will learn more about that in chapter 4. And he's told Paul that the church in Colossae is going really well. By, by and large, Colossians is a very positive letter. It's going very well, this church, but there are some concerns, which is why Paul writes. See, it seems that there were some false teachers in Colossae promoting the idea that these young Christians uh, could have a greater degree of spiritual fullness, right? that they could be more complete as Christians, if only they would kind of supplement their relationship with Christ uh, with this other, uh, by pursuing this particular spiritual experience. And scholars, there's lots of ink spilt about what exactly is this experience. I think I'm right. No, I'm not right. But I, but I think uh, the best explanation uh, is that this experience is centered around uh, observing various spiritual practices. Uh, that were designed to prepare you for entering into a spiritual vision. And the vision is of this kind of heavenly temple. We'll, we'll learn more about that in chapter 2. Right? You'll see stuff there about kind of uh, fasting and obeying rules and cleansing yourself and then entering into some vision where you see worship uh, uh, angels. Right? That's all in chapter 2. We'll get to that. But you can imagine you're a young Christian. Some false teachers come to your church and they say, look, if you, if you want real fullness, if you want to be really complete as Christians, sure, let's trust in Jesus. But you've also got to give lots of time to pursuing this whole other spiritual, uh, these other practices and this other experience. That left the Colossians asking questions. Are we true Christians? Or are we just second-class Christians? Is the gospel that Epaphras had preached to us the true gospel? Or just some invention of his? Uh, we've got this hunger for more in the Christian life. These guys are promising more. But what do we do with that hunger? Oh, so that's where Paul starts. First, in verses 3 to 5, he assures the Colossians that they are true Christians. That's what his aim is in these verses. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. So Paul wants the, the Colossians to know that he always thanks God for them, God, the Father of their Lord Jesus Christ, because he's heard from Epaphras that they're exhibiting the classic traits of true Christians. These are all through the New Testament. Faith, hope, and love. But he's heard from Epaphras that they're putting their faith 
in Christ Jesus. Faith there, not, not just being a, a, a vague belief that Jesus existed. You know, some people are like, oh, yeah, I've got faith. Oh, I believe Jesus existed. No, this is genuine trust in Jesus, dependence on Jesus, right? Trust that, that Jesus is the Christ. That's faith in Christ Jesus. Trust that, that Jesus is God's chosen king. The one that, that God said would come to establish and rule over his kingdom. And he'd establish God's kingdom by being a saving king, right? By rescuing people from their sins. We'll, we'll hear more about that later on. Uh, and that's why his name is Jesus, which means God saves. Jesus Christ, not just being Jesus' first and last names, but titles, names that actually have content, that mean something. So Paul says to the Colossians, I want you to be assured that you're true Christians because I've heard from Epaphras that your faith is genuinely in Christ Jesus. Your faith is in Christ Jesus. But not just because their faith is in Christ Jesus, also because of their love for all God's holy people. You might remember, maybe you've been to a wedding where that well-known passage is read, 1 Corinthians 13. What's it saying in context? It's saying that the primary evidence of, uh, of the work of the Spirit, of a Spirit-filled believer, of a Spirit-filled church, is love. Love, not just for God, but love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? Genuine commitment to Christ, faith in Christ, always leads to a genuine commitment to Christ's people. That's just the way it works. Right, and not just a commitment in general. You know, sometimes I talk to someone and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm committed to the church. I just don't go. You know, but I love the church. Well, no. Like Paul says that the Colossians, uh, when Paul says the Colossians love all of God's holy people, he's not saying that they've got a, a general love for God's church, for, for every Christian on the planet. Right, he's saying that he's heard from Epaphras about their particular love for one another, and their particular love for every Christian who's come across their path. So that's what encourages Paul. Right? He, he gives thanks to God for their, their faith in Christ and for their love for all God's holy people. Now, now, I know there might be some circumstances where it's hard for people to get to church. I get that. But in general, a genuine commitment to Christ, faith in Christ Jesus, leads to a genuine commitment to Christ's people. And that's why it's such an encouragement for Paul when he hears from Epaphras about their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all God's holy people. And notice that he knows that their faith and love spring from their hope, which is stored up for them in heaven. And that is, that the Colossians put their faith in Christ, they love all of Christ's people because they're looking forward to the fullness of what God has promised them in Christ. Right? It's their, their great hope. Right? It's eternal life with God and with his people in a new heavens, a new earth. Right? That, that's what's stored up for them in heaven. So verses 3 to 5, Paul assures the Colossians that they're true Christians because he's heard from Epaphras that they're exhibiting the classic traits of true Christians. Faith, hope and love. And of course they're only true Christians because they believe the true gospel which is what the next part of the passage is about in verses 5 to 8. Let me read. Uh, you've already heard about the hope of heaven, uh, Paul says, uh, in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. 
You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. So, so Paul's assuring them in these verses that they're, they're true Christians because they've heard the true gospel. Well, what do we learn about the true gospel? Uh, well, first, we learn that it's true. Right? Not rocket science, it's true. Right, but what does that mean? It means that uh, Paul is making the claim that the gospel is not just one item on the, on the shelf of the spiritual supermarket. Right? So like you're going down the aisle, I have a little bit of New Age spirituality, a bit of Buddhism, and I'll throw some gospel in too. Why not? Right? No, he's not saying, he's saying the gospel is the truth. The gospel is the true message that everyone on the planet has to respond to. That's what he means when he says that the gospel is true. Second, that the gospel is a gospel. Right? That, 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 I guess that sounds a bit redundant, right? But it means that the gospel's good news, which tells us some stuff about what it's not. Right? The gospel is not a, a set of philosophical principles. The gospel is not some spiritual advice to, to kind of a, a quest for self-improvement. The gospel is not a, a set of rules for you to obey. The gospel is good news, an announcement, a declaration of what God has done through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, the Lord Jesus. It's news. And so it follows that the gospel must be heard. But Paul makes a bit of a thing of that. The Colossians heard the gospel from Epaphras. Right? The gospel is a message to be proclaimed, not some deeds that people might see. Right? It's a message to be, to be proclaimed, not some deeds that people might see. That's not saying deeds aren't important. Right? Deeds, well, uh, the gospel always produces deeds. But those deeds are not the gospel. The gospel is the announcement about what God has done in Christ. And notice in verse 7 that the Colossians didn't just hear the gospel once from Epaphras. Look there in verse 7. Paul says they learned the gospel. This is through, it, through the New Testament. Right? Epaphras taught the gospel to the Colossians thoroughly until they'd really understood it. And, and in part, why that's necessary is because right at the heart of the gospel is a message about grace. You see it there. The, the message, they understood God's grace. That's hard to get. That God gives us what we don't deserve because it's drummed into us throughout our lives. You get what you deserve. Right? The, you, you need to be taught the gospel. You need to learn the gospel. Because the heart of it is this message that we get what we don't deserve through the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel's true, it's good news that must be heard, it's about God's amazing grace, and it's also living. All right, look at that. Paul says, uh, the gospel is bearing fruit. The gospel's growing, Paul says. Uh, some of you, you might remember the parable of the sower. Jesus says in that parable that wherever uh, the gospel is sown, wherever it's sown in good soil, where people have ears to hear it, uh, it bears fruit, an abundant crop. 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. And Paul says that's happening everywhere. The gospel's been sown and it's bearing fruit all across the known world. It's, it's being fruitful and multiplying and filling the whole world. Notice Paul's language there. The gospel's bearing fruit. It's multiplying, it's filling the world. It takes us back to Genesis. Remember Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 1, verse 28. Uh, God blessed humanity and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, 
and fill the earth. I think Paul has this in mind. His words are almost exactly the same. God's desire back in Genesis was that the children of the first Adam, that those children who were created in his image to reflect his glory would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But Adam and his children failed, didn't they? Sure, they multiplied, so they did that okay. But because of sin, they didn't reflect God's glory. But now Paul says that God has sent Christ, the ultimate Adam, the last Adam. And here he says that it's the, the children, it's God's children by faith in Christ who are being recreated in the glorious image of Christ. It's those children that are already being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. That's what he has in mind. Which leads to another characteristic of the gospel, which is that it's universal. I touched on this before. The gospel is a universal, it's consistent across the world, the true gospel. Which is worth mentioning because that was really important for the Colossians. You know, this guy, Epaphras, maybe some of them knew him, goes to Ephesus, gets converted, comes back to Colossae, he's preaching this gospel. We'll see in chapter 2 that they've never, never met Paul. And so they're thinking, is this the true gospel or just some thing that Epaphras has come up with? Paul says the gospel that is bearing fruit in your lives is the same gospel that's bearing fruit throughout the world. So be assured, Paul says. Be assured. And lastly, because the gospel is news that must be proclaimed, uh, it only continues to bear fruit through faithful messengers. Right? Men, women and children who are just like Epaphras, willing to sow the seed of the gospel that it might bear fruit across the world. That's the true gospel. right? And Paul says, you guys are true Christians because you've believed in this true gospel. right? And notice Paul's final assurance in verse 8. Uh, he's unpacked, Epaphras is a fellow, a, a faithful minister of Christ who told us of your love in the Spirit. Right? Why does he mention that there? I think it's because he's saying that, that uh, Epaphras, you guys know that Epaphras has faithfully reported to me about your love for one another. And I want you to know that he's faithfully reported to you the true message of the gospel. Right, this guy has a track record of being faithful. He's brought the true message of the gospel to you. So, so Paul assures these Christians that they're unsettled, they're unsure about where they're at. He assures them that they're true Christians because they believe the true message of the gospel. And then in verses 9 to 14, uh, he prays for them. Uh, he prays uh, that they would remember everything that they already have in knowing Christ and that they would increasingly experience true fullness in Christ. Uh, so look, in verse 9, Paul says, uh, for this reason, but I think that's, that's because you're true Christians who believed in the true gospel, right? For, for this reason... Since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you. Notice that word. What, what were the false teachers in Colossae promising? They were promising fullness, spiritual fullness, a, a greater degree, a greater depth of, of spiritual fullness. And here, that's exactly what Paul prays for. He prays for fullness. And it's not just a one-off, a little aberration. He says he prays uh, continually that God would fill them. Now, that's important, right? Because it's not like Paul is, is anti-Christian growth. He's not anti-progress. He knows that this side of heaven, no Christian has made it, as it were. 
Right? In Christ, there are always greater depths of, of spiritual fullness to discover, to pursue, to experience. Paul knows that. He prays for it right here. But he wants to be very clear here and throughout this letter that those greater depths of fullness are not to be found in moving on from Christ, but in going deeper into Christ, you see. Which is why chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 are really kind of the, the programmatic verses for this whole book. Right? Where Paul says uh, that this fullness is found in being more deeply rooted and built up in Christ. Like being a, a tree that's sinking its roots more and more deeply into the goodness of who Christ is. Right? So Paul's not saying that in Christ we have everything we'll ever need, so it's wrong to want more. But he's not saying that. He's saying that in Christ we have everything we'll ever need, so it's right. It's right to want more. In fact, it's right to pray continually that you would increasingly know and experience and live out the fullness of what you have in Christ. Pray for that. And Paul prays that God would fill the Colossians with two things. First, uh, that he would pray, uh, fill them with knowledge. Look, we continually ask God, verse 9, to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit, notice the fruit language again, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. That's a prayer that they be filled with knowledge, specifically that they be uh, filled with wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Now, once again, I think here it's useful for us to note a connection with Exodus chapter 31. If you've got a Bible, you can flip back to Exodus chapter 31, uh, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus chapter 31, uh, verse 3. Uh, the context in Exodus 31 is that God is giving Moses instructions for building the tabernacle, which is like the, the portable temple in the wilderness, uh, where God was going to dwell uh, to be with his people. Right, it's where God's glorious presence would be. And in that context, if you look in Exodus 31 in verse 2, God says to Moses, he says, See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, uh, of the tribe of Judah. And what's God done? I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, and with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and, and to engage in all kinds of crafts. You, you can, can you hear it once again? That the wording is, it's almost, an ex it's not a quote, but it's almost an exact quote that Paul's got in mind. He uses uh, exactly the same words uh, as uh, written in Exodus 31 verse 3, Colossians 1 verse 9. So back in Exodus 31, God tells Moses that he's filled Bezalel with his spirit. For what purpose? That he might have wisdom and understanding and knowledge. That he might apply that wisdom and understanding skillfully in building up the temple. Building up the, the tabernacle, you see. And that's exactly what Paul has in mind in Colossians 1. Paul's praying that God might fill the Colossians with his spirit, his spirit that gives wisdom and understanding and knowledge, uh, such that they might be skilled at living godly lives. Notice that the, the implication is skilled at living lives that are worthy of their Lord. That takes insight, wisdom, understanding. Right? Lives that, that please him in every way. Lives that are bearing fruit in every good work. But I think it's very clear that Paul has uh, Exodus 31 in mind, even though he doesn't quote it. 
in Colossians 1, verse 9. And given that Exodus is all about building up the tabernacle, and given that Paul's focus in uh, this prayer and in Colossians is that the Colossians might be what? Might be built up in Christ. I don't think it's a stretch to say that the result of the Colossians being filled with the Spirit and wisdom and understanding and, and doing all these good works, that the result of all that is that God's temple, his true temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church, would be built up, you see. This is going to be important as we unpack Colossians because the, the, the false teaching is all about entering into a new temple experience. And Paul's saying that in Christ and in the people of Christ, you have all the temple you need, you see. You don't need anything more. So just get busy building up what you already have. Don't get distracted by these false teachers. So this is something we should pray for. Right? That God would fill us with his spirit so we'd have wisdom to live godly lives that build up his church. That build it up in mission as more people come to know Christ, more people are added, and build it up in maturity as people come to grow in Christ more and more and more. So Paul says to the Colossians, you want fullness? Pray for true fullness. Get serious about fullness. Pray for fullness of, uh, of knowledge, of wisdom, of godly lives that will build up the people of Christ. Pray for that. And then he says, uh, pray for fullness of... Then he prays for fullness of power. Verse 11. Being strengthened with all power, Paul says, according to God's glorious might. That's worth noting. Like, like, Paul has no issues with praying that the Colossians would have a full-blown experience of God's power, filled with all God's power. Paul's got no problem with that. We're a bit antsy about that. You know, sometimes our, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters, they're all on about God's power. No, no, like, let's be serious. Paul's serious about God's power. Let's have a full-blown experience of God's power. And notice why Paul thinks the Colossians need God's power. It's so that they might have great endurance and patience. Isn't that anticlimactic? You know, I pray that you'd be strengthened with all God's power according to his glorious might, that you might cast out demons in the name of Christ and have amazing visions and, and perform miraculous deeds of wonder. No, not so much, just that you'd endure. Just that you'd be patient. And of course, that only seems anticlimactic until you actually try to live the Christian life in this world, isn't it? with all its suffering and testing and hardship, what do we need to do that? We need all the knowledge and wisdom that God will provide by his spirit. And we need all the strength that God will provide. There's a passage in Isaiah chapter 40 where uh, God's talking about the fact that he doesn't grow tired and he'll strengthen his people and they'll soar on wings like eagles or they'll run and not grow tired or they'll walk and not grow faint. Well, that's just here. Like sometimes you see God's power in, in, in his people soaring on wings like eagles. Sometimes you see it in just being able to take the next step of faith, in endurance, in patient endurance. That's a display of God's mighty power. And Paul says that so as we experience God empowering us to endure, uh, we give joyful thanks to him. It's only by his power that we take each step of faith in our Lord Jesus. 
And really, verses 12 to 14 is a bit of a bridge. You could put it with verses 15 to 23, or you could put it with verses 3 to 11. That kind of links them together. But I think what Paul's reminding us of in these verses is that even though we can and should pray for this true fullness in Christ, fullness of knowledge and power, we do have to remember the blessings that we already have in Christ. That's verses 12 to 14. First, in verse 12, Paul says we've got this amazing blessing of knowing that God our Father has qualified us. God our Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. What does that mean? It means that all the conditions have been met for people like you and I to enjoy our full inheritance as children of God. All the terms and conditions are done, right? Every I has been dotted, every T has been crossed uh, for you to fully qualify to share in this glorious inheritance as a child of God. Or you might have failed at all sorts of other things in your life. You might have absolutely no qualifications, but this is the qualification that really matters. And it's given to you completely by grace by God. You're qualified. Your Heavenly Father has qualified you to share in this glorious inheritance. And that's particularly important because in chapter 2, verse 18, uh, Paul points out that these false teachers in Colossae were somehow trying to disqualify the Christians. You see that? Paul says, don't, don't pay attention to these people who are trying to disqualify you, trying to suggest that your experience of the Christian life is deficient or, or incomplete. Paul says, that's rubbish. He's assuring the Colossians that God their Father has met every qualification for them to share in their full inheritance, eternal life uh, with him and his people. So that's the first thing. God our Father has qualified us and he's qualified us through the deliverance of Christ his Son. That's verses 13 and 14. Uh, For, Paul says, He's about to unpack. This is how our fathers qualified us. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Once again, as is classic with with these kind of little movements, uh, these false teachers were promising a, a much greater degree of spiritual freedom. If only you would come to us and our ministry, we'd be able to deliver you from a whole lot more things. And Paul says you don't need it. You've got no need for it. In Christ, you're already fully delivered. You've been set free, Paul says, from the whole dominion of darkness. That's a picture of life apart from Christ, life that is dominated by the power of sin and Satan and death. And Paul says that Christ, the glorious king, has entered into the dominion of darkness. He's defeated every power within the dominion of darkness and he's taken his people out of the dominion of darkness into his kingdom, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's son whom he loves. How did he achieve this? Well, we know from chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 that he achieved this great deliverance at the cross. You can flick to there if you like. I'm not going to read the verse. I'm going to refer to stuff in verses 14 and 15. But Paul tells us there in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 uh, that at the cross, Christ paid the penalty for our sins. You see the language. He he cancelled every charge against us. He uses the language of debts. He he paid off all the spiritual debts that we owe God. And so with every debt paid, we have the forgiveness of sins. That's what Paul mentions in verse 14. 
But we're not just forgiven, we're set free, redeemed, delivered. Right? Because at the cross, Christ also broke the power of sin. Notice Paul's language in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, uh, that Christ has disarmed every power in the dominion of darkness. Christ has taken away the only real weapon that Satan ever had against us. What was his only real weapon? He tried all sorts of things, but his only real weapon is a sin that has not been punished. But with Christ being punished in our place on the Christ, Satan's got nothing. He's got no weapon against us. And so Paul says to the Colossians, and I say to you, Please don't be unsettled by anyone who would try to make you feel, intentionally or not, that somehow you're a deficient or or second-class Christian. Be assured. I know most of you here. Some of you might not be Christians. You have to take this seriously. Maybe you need to be uh, set free from the dominion of darkness for the very first time through trusting in Jesus. But most of you here are Christians. And I know that you've believed in the true gospel, you're true Christians who are exhibiting these traits of faith and love and hope. And so you ought to be assured that you've been qualified for a glorious inheritance. Not because of anything you've done, but because of the amazing deliverance of Christ. And so maybe as you, we work through Colossians, as you read it with your kids, as you get one of those Bible reading plans, pray continually Pray continually that your great God and Father might give you fullness of knowledge and power, not for your sake, but that you might have wisdom to know how to live a godly life that builds up his people, right here, builds up his people in both uh, number and maturity. Uh, Let me pray. Uh, Great God and Father, uh, we do thank you for your word uh, to the Colossians. Uh, We pray this day that if anyone here is unsettled, that they might be assured that if their trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross in their place, uh, that they are indeed, if their faith is in Christ Jesus, if they're filled with love for all God's holy people, if they've got this great hope in heaven that they're a true Christian who's believed in the true gospel. And we pray, Father, that you might fill us by the power of your Spirit with all the wisdom and understanding and knowledge we need to live godly lives, to keep building up this church and your church around the world. We pray you might give us power to take each step of trusting in you, to be patient in the face of all testing and hardship. For the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.